Trouble with those short readings is uh, they're over before you even find them. Uh, but you did well if you managed to get there across to Matthew 28. Uh, you'll need probably a finger in both, but don't worry too much. I, I suppose today we're, we're talking a little more conceptually and jumping around the Bible in a few different spots. Uh, and let me as, as well add, well done for making it out on this cold, fairly bleak morning. I know colds are abundant. Uh, I'm hearing people sick all the time. And so uh, well done for making it this morning, and especially uh, if you're new or visiting among us. It's great to have you join us today. Uh, how about we pray and we'll spend some time reflecting on our, our great God. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we give you praise uh, for who you are and the fact that you're a God who is beyond uh, our understanding and yet in your mercy you reveal uh, yourself to us truthfully and faithfully that we can genuinely know what you are like even if we can't grasp all of you. Uh, Father, we ask today that you would help us uh, to know you a little more to deepen our knowledge of you, that it might deepen our love of you and it might change the way that we live. And we ask this, that Jesus might be glorified. Amen. Well, in the ruins of Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire, there are signs for visitors just to explain what life was like when the Abbey used to be a functioning monastery. At the chapter house, the guide reads this. Here the monks gathered every Sunday to hear a sermon from the abbot, except on Trinity Sunday, owing to the difficulty of the subject. Don't know what they did, whether they took the morning off and just went down to the pond and had a bit of a splash. Not sure. But but the concept of God as Trinity intimidates a little. even embarrasses many people, even people who, who dearly love God. And maybe that's you today. And perhaps if you'd been here and read last week's notice sheet and spotted we're going to be looking at the Trinity... You may just have joined those monks down at Fountain Abbey and uh, stayed in bed yourself. I want to say to you, thankfully you didn't. What we're discussing this morning is not a a side issue for the too hard basket. I want to say that the the Trinity, God as Trinity, is the distinctively Christian doctrine. Because it focuses on God and who he is in himself. Uh, The 39 articles, which are... I suppose the basis of belief for our church and for our our denomination, it doesn't shy away from God being Trinity. Uh, It actually opens with this, the first article, Article 1 of Faith in the Holy Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting without body, parts or passions, of infinite power and wisdom and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible, and in unity of this Godhead, There must be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. The Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. A unity of Godhead. Three persons. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now rather than hide away from what seems to be a fairly complicated, strange and almost embarrassing truth, you know, rather than kind of put it in the back half of the 39 articles, you know, somewhere like number 29, which no one's ever going to read up to, uh, so they put it up front. It's there, the first article, it's the basis, the starting point for all truth. Another historical summary, which I'm not going to read out, but you can track it down later on, the Athanasian Creed. A creed that every Anglican congregation was supposed to read monthly and say together monthly. Um, if you've ever read it, perhaps you're thankful we're not continuing that tradition. Uh, but it does state that if you don't firmly and faithfully believe in the triune God, then you can't be saved. The doctrine of the Trinity, who God really is, 
is essential. And, and even more than that, I want to say up front, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. I, I, kind of, I know the feeling is... Oh, but be excited. And I want you to be excited this morning. Because it actually expands the wonder of our God. When we look at God in his essence, in himself, it has to humble us and elevate him. And it transforms the way that we understand ourselves. Because we are people who are made in God's image. And so the, the Trinity is not just you know, a subject that those academics and philosophers and theologians can just chat about and we can get on and ignore it. I want to say it's essential for your daily life. Bold statement. Hopefully by the end you'll see why I say that. So if you think in any way, shape or form that relationships matter, then the Trinity is where it's at. Now, if relating to God matters to you, uh, then be excited because when you explore the Trinity, you're actually exploring God himself. You're exploring ultimate reality. And if relating to other people matters, and I hope it does, then be excited because what God does by looking at him himself, he sets the, the framework and the pattern for the way all our relationships should happen. And so over the coming weeks we're going to be looking um, at the Godhead. This week we're looking at the Trinity itself and in the coming weeks we'll look at the Father, we'll look at the Son, we'll look at the Holy Spirit. Uh, today though we get a chance to glimpse God himself and the perfect relationship. Uh, our two readings, uh, I suppose, are the foundation facts for us to go for the Trinity. Uh, that there is one God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So in Deuteronomy 6.4 it said this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So on one hand, it's speaking against other religions that claim that there's lots of gods around, you know, like Hinduism today. But on the other hand, it's speaking against atheism and agnosticism of most Australians. You know, there is one God, but he is not simple or simplistic. So our other reading from Matthew 28, uh, the risen Jesus, before he ascends up into heaven, says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I suppose what's interesting for us this morning is that he, he uses the singular name, not in the names of, but the singular name. Uh, Jesus doesn't command them to baptise in the, the plural, multiple names of Father, Son and Spirit, as though they were three separate entities. No, he speaks of a single person but not simplistically, not as though it's a single person with three roles in the way that you know, I am at the same time a son, a brother and a father, yet I'm one person. No, it's not simplistic. The, the inclusion of the of thee before each, so in the name of the father, of the son, of the spirit, actually matters. God, God is a complex unity with distinction. One God, three persons. That's not a New Testament invention though. Uh, in the opening lines of the Bible, uh, I suppose the seeds, so... Genesis 1, jot it down, you can look it up later. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Later in that chapter, we read in Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The, the plural is there. See, what is kind of, I suppose, present under the surface in the Old Testament is expounded and elaborated when we get to the New Testament, that there is one God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. I reckon the obvious question for us is, yeah, but how does that work? 
how do I make sense of that three and one? You know, just particularly if you've got you know mathematical backgrounds, you're going, this is just frustrating. Uh, this is in the realm of absurdity, isn't it? What does it mean to say God is three and one? I mean, people have tried lots of illustrations to explain it. Uh, I'd want to suggest they all end end up in some way misrepresenting God and lead us astray. You know, like uh, water, people have tried the water illustration. You know, water can be uh, steam, it can be liquid, uh, and it can be solid when it's ice. The trouble is, water can't be all those things at the same time. Uh, to, to get God wrong at that point, I want to say is, is dangerous. To focus too much on the oneness or too much on the distinction, the threeness, is dangerous. You can end up on one, one side uh, where you've just got this kind of simplistic blob of God. On the other side, you've got three gods. How does it work? How do we make sense of God functioning, um, throw a big word, trinitarianly? I want to say in part, one of our problems is is our thinking about what existence is. Our thinking about what it is to simply be leads us to ask the wrong questions. This is a heavy morning this morning. I hope you're keeping up, ticking those minds over. Uh, It's been said that there are only three fundamental root paradigms in human society uh, that explain what's essential, what it is to be. Only three kind of options. There's the atomic, uh, the oceanic and the spider's web. So, the atomic thinker, the paradigm, seeks to explain everything in terms of its very smallest part. So that, that, that matter is a collection of atoms, or, or even better, you can break that up, can't you? You can have subatomic particles. And, and in Western thinking, you know, it comes through that, that you know, we understand things better and better the more we break it down into a tiny, 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 tiny parts and separate it off. Uh, you know, comes out in society being a, merely a, a collection of individual human beings or if you're a fan of Margaret Thatcher as she famously put there is no such thing as society it's just individuals that's the atomic kind of way of seeing what it is to be uh, the oceanic sees the, the ultimate unity uh, and that everything flows into it you know all rivers run into the one ocean uh, it's more the eastern way of thinking you know Hindu's goal of moksha to escape the, the cycle of life and death or, or in the New Age movement where we're all one. The, the third paradigm is the spider's web. That we understand the world and what it is to be and what is the essence of something, not by individual or the whole, but, but how it all relates. Uh, it's said that this is typical of African thinking where you, know, you meet a, a, an African person, they'll introduce themselves in terms of all their relatives and their whole kind of tribe and, and you know, it goes on and on and on. It's, it's just so interconnected. It'd be hard for them to produce a business card, I suspect. Uh, they're all still individuals, but you understand what it is to be by their connection with others. I want to say when you start with God, the essence of being becomes much more about a dynamic and interconnected uh, state than a static either one or a static, many little particles. Oneness, what it is to be, just to exist, is not about being radically separated into little parts. It's not about being in a big blob with everyone else, indistinguishable and simplistic. It's about interconnection. The essence of being, the essence of what it is to exist, is actually seen in relationship. 
Now, so we can miss the trees for the forest if we're atomic. We can miss, sorry, miss the forest for the trees if we're atomic. We miss the trees for the forest if we're oceanic. Uh, the essence of the forest is in that relationship of the one tree to another. That's what it is essentially to be a forest. Now, I want to say God's essential being is about interconnectedness. You know, that the one God, the Father, the Son and the Spirit is best understood probably when we ask questions with that spider's web way of thinking. How does it all connect together? And if we buy into that, we see that God is you know, a being in permanent relationship. Now, I don't, I'm not pretending that we can grasp God fully or comprehensively this morning. He, he still is and always will be unique and greater than us. But we want to grasp something of what he is like. So some theologians have tried to explain how, how the three persons of the Trinity are related to one another as mutual indwelling. In other words, they live in each other. They live in each other, they're bonded to one another in a unique way and it's by their love for each other. They so totally love one another and are so totally of the same mind that they are so close that the three persons become one, they are connected. So John 14 picks up that kind of language. In John 14.10, Jesus says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words I say to you are not just my own, rather it is the the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So the, the Father exists in the Son and the Son in the Father and both of them in the Spirit, and the Spirit exists in the Father and Son, they all are enmeshed, they mutually indwell and live with one another. They, they dwell in, either, in other, one another to such an extent that they become one. It's the process of pure and perfect empathy. God is three persons, relating so perfectly, so intimately, they are one. Uh, he's a unity with distinction. The ultimate re- reality, therefore, is personal relationship. If you look at the three persons isolated from each other, then you'll misunderstand what it is to be. And if you look at them without distinction, again, you'll misunderstand what it is to be, what reality is. God is perfect relationship. And that has implications for us because we are made in God's image in Genesis 1. Let me give you four this morning, four implications. One is that you have to love and worship God alone. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, we read it before. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. There's a logic there that perhaps we don't always follow. That knowing that God is one should lead us to a particular action. That is, you've got to love him. And you've got to love him with everything. You've got to love him with all your heart and you've got to love him with all your soul and all your mind, every part of you. So God's oneness, the fact that there is no other God, means that you have to exclusively trust and serve him. Now, Because he's the one who exerts power over everything and no one else does, because he's the source of life and all creation heads along the destiny that he has set up, then you have to love him. Now, at points the world seems chaotic and confused because of sin. But the unity of God and his power and purpose says that there is an end it's heading to. That he is the one God over all, whether or not people acknowledge him, he's still ruling. 
And so he alone is the one we worship and trust and serve and adore. And there's no room for anyone else to take that. Secondly, God is personal and he invites people to share in his relationship. So God isn't an abstract philosophical concept. He's not a kind of necessary solution to scientific problems. That's not God. God is pure, perfect relationship. And that's his character in all his interactions. And so most amazingly about God is that he has the perfect relationship and he invites people like you and me in to share it. Rather than thinking, oh, I'll just wreck it up. You know, I've got this great thing going on over here. Invite people in, they're going to ruin it. No, no, God out of his love invites others. He sends his son who dies and opens up the way. He places his spirit within people who respond to him that they might be in that relationship with him. We're going to grapple more with some of the work of the spirit and son later on. But God made us capable of communication with one another and with him. Human language um, is the vehicle for all our relationships and it can actually convey the truth about God meaningfully. We, We can actually know what God is like. We don't just speak in analogies about him, we can know him really. We can have genuine communication with God. It's remarkable. Because he reveals himself to us in words, in human language. And he calls us to respond to him back in words. We can speak to God in prayer. So Romans 8, look it up later on, talks about how we can address God as Abba, Father. Um, Abba is not a reference there to uh, the Swedish supergroup. Rather, it's an Aramaic expression. Uh, It's an intimate kind of daddy word. But daddy doesn't quite capture it because we stop saying daddy when we're about three or a bit older. Um, you know, this is a word that's intimate and yet you can still do it as an adult referring to your father. Um, there's something affectionate about it and we who are in Christ can actually communicate and relate to God like that. Uh, someone I know reflected on, on the privilege of relationship with God this way. He said, I've only ever been apart from my family for Christmas once, about a decade ago. Uh, however, a friend's family invited me to their table. And when I was arrived, I was greeted with conviviality, given presents. I was included in the rituals and the banter of the family on Christmas Day and my fears of loneliness were soon dispelled. Uh, It was an overwhelming and happy day. And he asked, could this be an inkling of what Christians experience trinitarianly in their prayers? I think it's right. It's like being invited into the family Christmas celebration. There's the perfect relationship going on and you can go and join in on it and they make you feel at home and welcome out of sheer mercy. You know, this, it's the opposite of the friends sitcom, if you know that. You know, six, six friends who had the perfect relationship but put up walls so that no one else could come and be friends with them. No, no, God with the perfect relationship breaks the barrier down and invites people. The third thing I want to say, implication, is, is that relationships are ultimate reality. Uh, that, that the subject of theology is not God, but God in his relationships. The essence of God is eternal relationship. Last weekend in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, in the good weekend, they had an extract from a new book, The Pinstripes Prison, How Overachievers Get Trapped in Corporate Jobs They Hate. Catchy title. Um, Perhaps some of us might want to pick it up and read it. Uh, One story from it uh, went this way. Nathan Laird enjoyed his work and liked his colleagues, but left his firm because he hated his work dictated by billable hours. 
to quote him, time sheets. That's the thing that sucks your soul. Your whole day is constructed like that. You're talking to a friend on the phone and you think, that's one billable billable unit gone. Even if you've not been in that kind of work, and I know some of you are and have been, we're conditioned to think that, that the ultimate reality is output, achievement. But God, being Trinity, says, no, 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 it's relationships. Now, I'm not saying, don't mishear me, output's not bad. God is a worker, everything that exists, he made. You know, output's good. But his achievement, his output, is to serve relationships and the relationships he enters. The true object of humanity is to establish and maintain and to deepen personal relationships with God and with other people. And that's what it is to be human, to be in the image of God. Relationship is central to it. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 7 talks about us being one humanity and yet with distinction, male and female, we reflect imperfectly the, the unity of the Godhead. Beings in relationship. An old lecture of mine put forward uh, the mutual love ethic. Carving away through a kind of individualist and collective debate he argued that the basic unit of society is beings or individuals in relationship. So that means you can't go off and be a hermit. You're not free to do that because that's a denial of what it is to be a human. We actually have to go and engage meaningfully with other people and we have to engage meaningfully with God. But we are individuals created for relationship. Now, to go out and have a coffee with a friend is a good expression of just being a human. And even more, that's got to affect the church, hasn't it? So if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, we won't, but look at it later. Paul talks about the unity with distinction of our meeting uh, and he uses the language of the Trinity. So he he talks about how they are one and yet different uh, as a fellowship of believers, different gifts given though by the same spirit, where there's one but difference. And in all that, there's an interdependence. So it moves on to 1 Corinthians 13 where love is the key. And that's our fourth and final implication. I want to say all your relationships should imitate the model of God himself. Okay, to say relationships are, are what it's about doesn't justify every relationship. You know, if you're in an abusive friendship, that's not right just because it's a form of relationship. Our relationship should reflect the way God relates. Therefore, true, personal, true, true proper personal relationship has to be other person-centred, not self-centred. Because that's what God does. So in John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son, he's placed everything in his hands. And again in 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. And yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Uh, Jesus says in, again in John 5, By myself I can do nothing, I only judge as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And we need to do that in our relationships. We have to be other person centred. We need to learn that kind of forgiveness and humility and patience. We need to, we need to communicate with other people clearly. You know, there isn't any room for, for stonewalling or huffiness or tantrums, because uh, it's not just three-year-olds who do that. We actually need to be fair with other people. We need to treat them rightly. It doesn't mean, again, treat everybody the same. You know, a rich man um, 
with no relatives would be, would be acting righteously if in his will uh, he left his wealth equally to the community. But it wouldn't have been fair or righteous if he had a wife and children and treated them exactly the same. Uh, our relationships as well have to have a costly faithfulness about them. You know, we, we've got to be people who, when we say something, we keep our word, even when it hurts us. You know, we've got to respect the differences amongst one another. We don't paper over distinction. We, we've got to respect order uh, and distinction, that men to women, older to younger, uh, recognising positions of authority, just as God does. Now, the list can go on, but what I want to say, relationships are the ultimate reality. But we've got to keep going back and see how God does it if we're going to do it well. We're going to express it. Now the monks of Fountains Abbey, they took the morning off on Trinity Sunday, maybe because they knew the abbot was going to say what I did. Uh, To be honest, I feel a little sorry for them. um, Because to look away and ignore the Trinity is actually to miss seeing the the ultimate reality and the perfect relationship. For our God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit is one and he is to be loved with all you have, your heart, your soul and your strength. Pray that we might do that. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing to us what you are like. We thank you that you are greater than what our minds will ever properly grasp. And we praise you that you and yourself are the perfect relationship. We thank you for the way you've made us in your image and therefore able to have relationship with you and others. And we ask that you would give us strength, that you would strengthen us by your spirit to to conduct relationships in a way that actually pleases and honours you. Help us to worship you alone and may that be seen in the way that we treat you and treat others. In Jesus' name, Amen.